You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with uh, my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hello, hello. I see that the tape on your water bottle matches our the tape on our mics. <laughs> I'll tell you what, man. Same source. Yeah? Yeah, okay. it's the same tape. Same roll of tape. You get a lot of tape out of one roll. As uh, we move into our sixth year doing this podcast. <laughs> We've moved on to <laughs> Some of the observations have become incredibly mundane. Uh, who's on the show this week? Uh, this week on the show is the editor-in-chief of HuffPost, Lydia Polgreen. Uh, before that, she was the head of the New York Times Global. Before that, she was uh, reporting from Africa for years. Uh, she's had a really interesting career, and we talked about how she got into this stuff and those jobs at the Times and also her uh, current work running HuffPost. Yeah, it's a strange time to be uh, crossing paths with the uh, HuffPost story. Yeah. Not, I w- not intentional. No. She, uh, not I, unintentional either, <laughs> just I mean, random. <laughs> she and I, uh, we booked this a long time ago, and she's very busy, and so we couldn't do it until now. And in the subsequent time, perhaps part of the reason that she was so busy was that HuffPost was going through all these changes. They laid a bunch of people off uh, a couple weeks ago, and we talked about that uh, and, and a whole host of uh, other things. Do you uh, subject her to this freezing studio? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh, Yes. I will acknowledge the heat is out in the office. Uh, Thank you for bringing that to my attention. Okay. I just, I didn't know if you knew. Yeah. No no one else is um, constantly, constantly. I I know that your employees wouldn't be like the kind of people who would be comfortable enough to let you know something like that. I, I, I estimated it was maybe 40. Just above forty degrees. You you were sitting in a particularly cold spot, <laughs> like a like a fish. You should have swum to warmer water. <laughs> I can't feel my hands, Max. Uh, if you are looking to heat up inboxes everywhere with an email newsletter, <laughs> I say again, if you're looking to heat up, <laughs> you got it. Uh, with an email newsletter, uh, there's no better way to do it than with MailChimp. They integrate with everything. Every time I'm signing up for something, I could just activate my MailChimp in there. I can't remember what it was I was setting up this week, but it was just like right there, just a checkbox. Click of a button. Sign into MailChimp, and people can sign up to uh, your email newsletter. Keep it hot. Keep it spicy. <laughs> Here's Max with Lydia Polgreen.
Well, hey, Lydia. Hi, Max. Thanks for coming on the program. I'm really glad to be here. Uh, me too. Long time coming, this one. We have been corresponding about this for a long time on multiple platforms. Multiple platforms. Yeah. You're Well, you're a multi-platform person. I am, although increasingly less so. Um, like a lot of people, I've basically pulled entirely back from Facebook. Um, I'm still on Instagram, I guess, but that's mostly for the pictures of uh, dogs. And um, I've gotten really into bread baking. And um, for me, like watching videos of people make bread, shape dough, uh, score their loaves before they go into the oven is like, I guess the kids call it... Uh, AMSR or yeah, something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. That's like my... That's your happy of, place? That's my happy place. <laughs> uh, you know, and like all journalists, I'm on Twitter, which yeah. is where you and I often find ourselves yeah, dialoguing. You, you're super on Twitter. You know, I have pulled back a little bit lately. Oh, yeah? yeah. And I, you know, for... It's so funny. Like my relationship with social media was really shaped by when I came to it and where I was in my life when I came to it. Tell me about that. Well... I first got I got my first Twitter account when I was based in West Africa for the New York Times. And if you're a reporter for an American newspaper based in a really far flung place, the Internet becomes really, really important as a way to connect back to the conversation that's happening in the place that you came from. But also, as Twitter became a thing, um, it became a really important place to be tapped into the conversation that was happening around you at the places that you were going to cover. So mm-hmm. I think I first got on Twitter when I was in West Africa and was just about to head to India. And it was when Twitter was awesome before it started to really suck. And, um, you know, it was fun Twitter. It was fun Twitter, but it was also kind of early Twitter in India where, you know, all of this kind of pent up desire to communicate and broadcast. And this is particularly true in countries that have a long history of like press regulations and broadcast licenses are tightly held. And, you know, people felt really squelched, like they couldn't speak. And, you know, so for me to come to social media, in that kind of environment made it really, really exciting. Um, And it also meant, you know, kind of accountability for my reporting in a way that is unusual for foreign correspondents, right? You know, when I was a kid living in West Africa, and we, we can come back to why I was living in West Africa when I was a kid, you know, I would see these like major events unfolding in front of me, like Ghana's transition from um, military rule to democracy. And, you know, I couldn't read a New York Times story about it because like the Internet didn't exist then. Um, well, it did exist, but it was, I certainly did right. not have access to it. We didn't even have a home phone, right? And so I think I would think about like, Whatever the foreign correspondents were writing about these events, there was no way for Ghanaians to be like, hey, actually, like, these are the people you should be talking to or, hey, you've gotten this completely wrong. And particularly as, you know, as a representative of a really powerful news organization in a part of the world that doesn't get that much attention, I think that the accountability of the people around you being able to not only read your journalism in real time, but also tell you what they think about it in real time on an open platform is great discipline and often results in better journalism. Um, So I was initially like an incredibly enthusiastic adopter of Twitter. And I felt like, wow, this is a great tool for transparency and accountability for particularly for people like me who would jet into a country, land there, write a story about it. And like, what do I know? I mean, I, I tried to do my job really well, but I really welcomed that accountability. Of course, a lot has changed since then. Yeah, I was gonna say, I feel like that spiel was basically like, Jack Dorsey's dream journalist pitch on Twitter. 
I And, you know, for a while, that's exactly what it was, right? It's all about unintended consequences and what happens when we allow platforms to become too powerful yeah. or they're built in a way that allows them to be co-opted by people with um, really bad intentions. Give me your, like, current feelings on Twitter. Because you, if you have dialed back, I'm interested in how. Because I think of you as someone um, who's pretty dialed in. I think that I have become much less kind of loose on Twitter um, and think a lot more about how things I um, tweet will be perceived. Um, you know, particularly at a moment like this where we're gearing up to cover a presidential campaign um, and we are dealing with a deeply polarized, um, you know, fractured society, not only in the United States, but in other places where uh, HuffPost is present. The New York Times, uh, when I worked there and I was a correspondent at The New York Times for 10 years and, you know, spent a total of about 15 years working there, you know, I was just one person with, a, you know, who'd be out in the field reporting about something, in my opinions, they probably pushed the envelope a little further than um, my bosses at the Times would like, but um, but it wasn't that big of a deal to the institution. And I do think about it a little differently now that mm -hmm. I'm the editor of a publication. Um, you know, but look, HuffPost is not the New York Times, right? I mean, you know, we come from a different kind of journalistic ethos. So I think there's less of an expectation that, you know, look, the editor in chief, I mean, the executive editor of the New York Times doesn't tweet. And that's a choice that he's made. Yeah. Um, I don't know if Marty Baron tweets. Um, I think it's very occasionally and like with extreme reserve. <laughs> I mean, another aspect of this is you don't want to be captured by Twitter. Um, well, that was the other part of it I was going to ask you. It's like, uh, you have like a big important job with a bunch of shit to do. Yeah. Like, and can, you, can, Don't you have to like get off your phone a little bit? You could sit in, the phone is the least of it, right? <laughs> you could sit in front of TweetDeck with, you know, those huge columns in front of you just like whizzing by all day and literally piss away all your time. Yeah. It's very, very easy to do. <laughs> and when I was a foreign correspondent, and was sort of a, a lone wolf in my pajamas, you know, working at home on stories, I, um, like many writers, would procrastinate by spending endless hours sitting in front of Twitter. And that's just not possible anymore. I mean, I just have like so many other things to do. Um, but the other way in which I mean captured by Twitter is just letting Twitter become your assignment editor, mm -hmm. um, letting Twitter make you think that you have a pulse on what's actually going on um, in a place or with a situation, um, letting Twitter dictate kind of the parameters of the debate. Um, that I think is particularly problematic. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I've had to really, really pull myself out of. How did you, uh, how did you end up in West Africa as a kid? I, my dad worked in international development. Um, his background was in agricultural engineering and vocational education. And he, um, he basically would work for different international aid organizations, um, development organizations on projects to help um, mostly people in the agricultural sector in East and West Africa improve the yields of their crops or, um, you know, get things to market more easily. Um, so that uh, that's what took us there in part. Um, the reason even beyond his work and the reason that he chose that kind of work is that my parents were Baha'is. And um, in the Baha'i faith, there is an expectation that missionary work is basically undertaken under one's own steam. So it's not like if you're a part of a church and they, you know, all raise money and send off a pastor to be a missionary in a country. They essentially call on believers to go to places and, you know, find work and, and figure out how to spread the faith that way. Um, 
I should say that I myself and really no one in my immediate family is still a Baha'i, but that was a big part of my growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, for people who aren't familiar, it's a it's a religion that I guess I would say it has the same relationship to Islam that Christianity has to Judaism okay. um, and um, has a lot of wonderful beliefs in it and is a great religion. I just happen not to be a believer. When did you decide that? I think I was never a believer, to be honest. Um, I've always had a a tremendous fascination with faith um, and I think a tremendous amount of envy for people who felt deep faith but never felt it myself for reasons that I I honestly can't explain. Um, I think that partly I grew up in a pretty, like, cerebral household and in a lot of ways the Baha'i faith is a very cerebral religion and therefore once I sort of had my own consciousness as a young person, I was just much more drawn to science, to philosophy, to um, literature and things like that. Was Um, there ever a moment where you like told your folks, like, uh, I'm not into it? Yeah. I mean, I think more than anything, I just kind of drifted away. And, you know, the the Baha'i faith has like pretty, you know, despite seeming like quite a progressive religion on issues like race and equality of men and women, um, you know, there were there were two deal breakers that as I came into adolescence, um, just it became clear that they were going to be unacceptable to me. One is a prohibition on the use of, of alcohol and intoxicating drugs of any kind. And, you know, as a teenager, I discovered alcohol and, and, and marijuana. And, and intoxicating yes. drugs of many <laughs> and that that became a little bit untenable. Um, and it also um, does not have very progressive teachings around homosexuality. And so, you know, when I um, started coming into the consciousness of myself as a queer person, that wasn't going to work. And ultimately, I think that led to my entire immediate family abandoning the faith. Hmm. What was it like growing up in, in all well, over so, Africa? So um, we, we moved to Kenya when I was four years old. And I should say my mother's from Ethiopia, although we never lived in Ethiopia. Um, and so I'd kind of grown up in, you know, my father is a white American from Minnesota. So, you know, I'm biracial. I'm like literally African-American. Um, and we moved to the, my, and my parents actually met in Ethiopia when my dad was an exchange student and then came back to the U.S., got married. My brothers and I were born um, here in the U.S. And when I was four, we moved to Kenya. And, you know, I did all my grade school years there and then um, high school in, we came back to the U.S. for a bit. My dad did a Ph.D. at the University of Minnesota. So I get to claim that I'm from Minnesota because <laughs> I spent my agonizing middle school years there. Yay, Roseville Area Middle School. Um <laughs> So what was it like? I mean, that's a great question. I mean, I think anybody's childhood is like exactly what it is, right? And you only know what you experience. Um, And for me, I think growing up in Kenya, and we moved around to a bunch of different places within Kenya, you know, that feels like ancient history. I was in grade school, and my memories are sort of fragmentary, but... um, it was on, on one level incredibly exciting um, in ways that must have seemed really scary to my parents. You know, Kenya at the time was governed by this guy, Daniel Arab Moy, who was a longtime dictator. And, you know, there were secret police and things like that. There were coup attempts. I remember one coup attempt. I think I was six years old when it wow. happened. Um, you know, where there were tanks rolling through the streets and looting and things like that. But to me felt like really exciting events, but I think to my parents were, were pretty terrifying. Um, were you getting interested, I mean, not when you were six, but like what was Kenyan media like? Like how did journalism come into your life? 
I mean, journalism really came into my life more when we lived in Ghana when I was in high school. When I was a little kid, I remember, you know, we living in Kenya, I remember watching the, you know, national broadcaster and saying to my mom that I thought that the president worked at the airport because, you know, they would always show on TV him at the airport greeting or going on a on an international trip. But, you know, we didn't we didn't live in a connected media saturated world, right? I mean, I I spent a year as a kid living at a you know rural agricultural college uh, where my dad was teaching um you know some dairy science class or something so i you know i feel like as a little kid i was very kind of untethered um my dad was always a, an enthusiast for the latest of, latest technology so while we were re- living at this rural um college, he managed to, at one point, bring home a CD player. And CDs were brand new at the time. This was the 80s, of course. And uh, he, I think he had three CDs. And they were Paul Simon's Graceland, a Fleetwood Mac's Greatest Hits, and I think a Lionel Richie CD. So I'm not really answering your question about news media, but like that was <laughs> that my was your culture. That was my culture, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um that and, um, you know, running around barefoot in the mud in a, at an agricultural college. Um, <laughs> no, and when we moved to Ghana, you know, where I was, you know, a young teenager, I, I must have been 12 or 13 when we moved there, um, you know, I'd started to have a much greater political consciousness. And again, on that on that note of political consciousness, you know, my dad, um, you know, who, as I said, is a, is a white American, was very conscious of raising three black children outside of the context of of America. And so a lot of my cultural education had to do with him. And because he also knew that my mother was an African and not an African-American. And he knew that we would eventually have to go back to America to live as black people and wanted us to understand what that meant. So, you know, I think I was 12 when my dad gave me a copy of the autobiography of Malcolm X and said, you really need to read this. <laughs> so there was this whole sort of curriculum of understanding wow, understanding what it meant to be black in America. But being taught by two parents who didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just it was just really interesting that from my father's perspective, this was really a crucial thing that he felt he he needed to pass on to us. Um, and uh, how do you do? I think he did. OK. I mean, look, I I. I'm very much kind of globalist in my orientation. Um, I have spent most of my life living in contexts where I am a stranger, Um, you know, as a child, being in countries that were not my country of birth and not the country of my parents. I spent much of my career in those kinds of environments. And even here in America, you know, my claim to Americanness and to an identity here, whether it's as an American or as an African American um, or any other identity that that you'd want to talk about, is you know both as sturdy and as tenuous as anyone's is. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I I do think about you know sort of where I fit in, but you know, and, and I think that people have who have this kind of life often find themselves wondering, you know. What is my identity? Where do I fit in? And and weirdly, I, I feel like I've gone to the other extreme, which is I, because I, I really never fit in anywhere, I just assume that it's my job to be at home everywhere. And that's a really great way to be if you're a journalist, um, because it means that you can go into really any situation and feel like you can navigate it, that you can find a way to understand it um, and not be thrown by by being an alien, which journalists 
truly are. You know, we're, we're outsiders who come in to try and understand from an insider perspective and then take the story back out and tell it to the world. And um, and that's always been at the core of who I am um, as a person and, and certainly as a journalist. When did you become a journalist? Well, I got my first scoop when I was in high school. I was the editor of the Ghana International School paper, um, which was called Vibes, which I, I thought was actually a really great name for a, <laughs> for the uh, uh, high school paper of an African international school. Um, and uh, Ziggy Marley, the son of Bob Marley, uh, came to town to do a concert. And this was a really, really big deal because, you know, like we didn't get many celebrities in Ghana in the um, mid 90s. I'm sorry, in the early 90s. Um, so Ziggy Marley was in town and I wanted to get an interview with him. And I was just absolutely hell bent that, you know, I was going to get an interview with Ziggy Marley and this was going to be on the front page of Vibes one week. And so I figured out where he was staying, which was a, a beach hotel, and just kind of staked it out and just kept hanging around and hanging around in all my free time. I'd ride my bike over there after school. Um if I didn't see him, you know, I'd have to bike home for dinner. And then, you know, if my mom would let me, I'd go out again in the evening and just wait and wait and wait. And eventually I managed to meet some hangers on of his entourage and um, and sort of worked my way from there and, and got the interview. So um, so that was uh, that what, was exciting. Do you remember what you asked him about? Uh, thankfully, there are no extant copies of <laughs> Vibes uh, recording what was almost certainly an incredibly lame interview. Um <laughs> I worry that my mom has one somewhere that she's like holding in reserve. Uh, that... well, I'll, I'll email her after this. We'll see if we can get it for the show notes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It'll be really, really, <laughs> really embarrassing if you do. Um, so I liked writing. I'd always liked writing. I'd been a, you know, a really big reader when I was a kid. Like I, I just loved books. Um, and, um, you know, reading begets writing in, in many people. And so I'd always been interested in writing. So when the opportunity came up to work on the school paper, I, I was really excited about it and ultimately became the editor. But, you know, then I went to college and I went to this tiny liberal arts college in Maryland that has this great books program that's very sort of hermetic. And, um, you know, I sort of went back into reading um, as my sort of like primary thing. And stepped away from journalism. And at St. John's, where I went, um, it sort of prided itself on being really kind of outside of of current events and not really thinking about what's going on in the world around us, but really be engaging with, you know, Plato and Aristotle and mm. Euclidean geometry and learning calculus by reading Newton and all that kind of stuff. So I had this kind of like four-year gap where I, I really didn't engage with journalism at all. Um and when I graduated and came up for air, I thought, okay, well, what am I going to do with my life? And I thought I wanted to go to graduate school and become a philosophy professor because because the money, sure, yeah, but for the money, yeah. absolutely, and also because it's a super easy thing to do, uh, <laughs> getting a PhD, really lucrative and easy, my favorite combination. Um, so I thought that's what I wanted to do, but I, you know, I hadn't taken the um, the GRE in my senior year at school, and I needed to um, I needed to do that. So I, I said, well, I'll take a year off and you know just get a job. And I got a job working for a lawyer, and I remember sitting at my desk, and these were lovely people and nice guy to work for. I remember sitting at my desk and thinking, like looking at the clock and just thinking, like is like five o'clock going to come soon so I can like go and like do something interesting. And 
it was like a bolt from the blue that I was like, I can't live my life like this. Like, mm-hmm. I can't be a person who like sits at a desk and looks at a clock. Like, you know, I lived through a coup attempt when I was six years old. Like, I'm destined for bigger things than this. <laughs> you know, it wasn't quite that grandiose, but it was sort yeah. of like, I know something about the world and I'm pretty good about being out there in it and navigating it. And like, maybe the choices that I'm leaning towards are not the right ones for me. Um, so I was chatting with a friend of mine from college who'd just gotten an unpaid internship at a magazine in D.C. called The Washington Monthly. And he said, well, they need more unpaid interns. You know, if you're really unhappy in your job, like, why don't you come and do this? And I couldn't really afford to. I, you know, I had student loans. I had, um, you know, rent. I needed to eat. But um, I'd supported myself all through college waiting tables. So I was like, maybe if I can intern during the day and wait tables at night, I could do this for three months. And I did. And it was exhausting, but also really fun. But, you know, the minute I sort of got my hands on what it was to do journalism, and as an intern, I was doing it at like the lowest possible level, you know, um, doing research for writers, you know, fact checking, that kind of stuff. But I just kind of instantly knew that this was that I'd hit on something that would not cause me to look at the clock and wonder when the day (laughs) was going to be over. Um, How'd you get from there to... uh you know, running bureaus for the Times. I, I worked at the Monthly for about a year. Um, eventually, um, the legendary editor of the Washington Monthly, Charlie Peters, took pity on me and gave me an actual salary um, when he learned that um, I knew how to work a spreadsheet and could balance the checkbook for the uh, the Washington Monthly. So my official title was business manager, but I sort of spent 50% of my time doing that mm-hmm. um, and then 50% of my time doing editorial work. I ended up doing that it's for- It's kind of like your job now, right? Kind of like my job. <laughs> it's- Sadly true, it really comes full circle. Um, But I I spent about a year doing that, and I think Charlie had wanted me to stay on and become an editor, but I realized that the pace of a monthly policy magazine wasn't what I wanted to do. And and so I'd sort of on a lark applied to Columbia Journalism School, and very unexpectedly, not only did I get in, I I got a full scholarship. Um, And I sort of thought, you know, go and live in New York uh, for a year for free, you know, maybe learn something, maybe make some connections that'll help me get into a slightly higher metabolism form of journalism mm-hmm. that will lead me somewhere. Um, so, Are you really ambitious then? Do you describe yourself that way? No, I don't think so. I mean, I, you know, it's funny. I always had this sense that I was going to do like really, really cool stuff because my whole life experience had been one of like, you know, like my cousins lived in rural Minnesota, you know, and I went on safari, you know, like I, and hung out with monkeys. And, you know, when you're a little kid, you're like, oh, this is really neat. And so I, I sort of had this sense that I wanted that aspect of my life to continue. But I don't think that I was like ferociously ambitious. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I sort of felt like I know I can do things and I know that I have like a real taste for adventure and for ideas and that those two things combined in journalism like made a lot of sense. My highest ambition was to become a a journalist in Africa. And um, lo and behold, I I managed to do that, you know, before I was 30, which was (laughs) way faster than I thought it was going to happen and and happened, I think, in some ways almost by accident. But yeah, it... um, I don't think I was particularly ambitious. In fact, I'm not even sure that I'm ambitious now. Um, Really? Yeah. I mean, I... I mean, what's my relationship to ambition? Um, I'm ambitious for stories, right? Like I'm ambitious to put ideas out into the world and to change things. But in terms of like moving from big job to big job or 
that kind of thing, not so much. Just so it's all just like a, an accident that you've had a bunch of big jobs? <laughs> I don't know that it's an accident. Um, so, I, you know, I mean, the short story is I went, you know, from Columbia Journalism School, worked at a newspaper in upstate New York, worked at a newspaper in Florida, but pretty quickly ended up as a kind of trainee reporter at the Times. And, and it, you know, you make your own luck, I suppose. And this is going to sound like a weird thing to describe as luck. But, you know, pretty early in my tenure at the Times, the... Um, the Jason Blair scandal erupted. And for people who don't remember, Jason Blair was a young reporter who was caught fabricating, plagiarizing a bunch of stories. And it you know, was a huge, huge scandal and controversy. I mean, you look back now and you think like, oh, that's a media scandal. <laughs> like, right. <laughs> have How I got quaint. one for you? How quaint. Yeah. Um, but as a result of that, you know, what had been this very secretive process of people getting access to really cool jobs, like, you know, you'd get kind of tapped on the shoulder and told to, you know, hey, are you interested in this job? They created a much more transparent, um, basically every open job was posted. And I was a really young, very new, like I'd just been made permanent staff like a few months earlier. And I put my hand up when the South Africa bureau chief job came open. And I knew that I wasn't going to get it. I mean, you know, two of the past three executive editors of the Times had been, you know, <laughs> had been bureau chiefs in South Africa, Bill Keller and um, Joe Lillyveld. You know, it's an important position. And I was like a punk kid. Um, but because of the atmosphere at the time, the foreign editor sort of gamely invited me into his office and said, happy to talk to you. And I just talked about my passion for reporting, my passion for I mean, it seems silly to say my passion for Africa. I'd actually never been to Southern Africa. Like all of my experience and whatever could be called expertise was in West and, and East Africa. But, you know, he was sufficiently impressed that he later called me and said, look, you're not getting this job. We're going to give this job to like a grown up. But until we can actually fill it, you know, do you want to go babysit in the bureau for five weeks and, you know, let's see what you can do? And I said, oh, yeah, boy, boy would I like to do that? That yeah. would be amazing. And, you know, that was a really, really big break. And then that led to being sent to cover the bicentennial, the Haiti bicentennial, which coincided with a big political crisis there. And then when the West Africa bureau chief job came open, very suddenly I found myself in that job. I'm going to tell you, I'm just going to be honest with you. I don't totally buy the ambition thing you're saying, but that's okay. <laughs> I, maybe to put it in a slightly different way, like it's interesting as soon as you started talking about like because of how you grew up, you were always felt sort of like an outsider which forces you to navigate a place. I know plenty of people who work at the Times. It's not a super easy place for some people to navigate, you know? Right, like, yeah. It is its own culture. It is. Did you feel like you could find a way through it in the same way that you were finding a way through these other places? It's really interesting. I think that I was, again, fortunate in my choices and inclinations in that you have to remember at the time that I went to West Africa, which was, you know, the end of 2004, most of my colleagues who were sort of conventionally ambitious were scrambling to cover the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, right? I mean, this was the a nation at war time of the New York Times, right? The big story, the major global story was was the conflagration in the Middle East. And I just, and there were, you know, fratricidal battles in the Baghdad Bureau of the New York Times that have been written about elsewhere over bylines, over who was going to mm -hmm. get this embed with this, you know, division of whatever branch of the military. And it's kind of funny that I spent a decade as a foreign correspondent at the New York Times, you know, and a foreign correspondent 
of some accomplishment without ever having set foot in, uh, you know, the place that provided like the lion's share of global news <laughs> in that period. Um, but I think for me, I, I really, I really wanted to be kind of left alone. I wanted to find a place where I could pursue my own ideas and passions and write the stories that I wanted to write without having to worry about colleagues who might want to bigfoot me or also without having to worry about editors who had really strong opinions about what the story should be. And the great thing about covering Africa for the New York Times is that there's a huge amount of support for, in the abstract, we must have really great reporting from Africa. It's part of the Times identity. It's part of the the history of the Times to be really committed to re, you know reporting on the continent. But there's not a lot of specificity to what that needs to be. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's sort of the opposite of being the Jerusalem bureau chief. I think you know right. uh, there are a lot of people who have a lot of opinions <laughs> of what you know what the New York Times. And I mean within the institution. Yeah. I mean there are lots of people outside of the institution who have very strong opinions about what the Times reporting of Africa should be. But those at that time, those voices again pre social media, pre a lot of things, they weren't really heard. So perhaps. To concede your point, my ambition expressed itself in finding a lane that felt like a place where I could be myself and run um, into some open space and run into some open space. And, you know, there are lots of different ways to be a correspondent in on the continent. And, you know, I did my share of covering, you know, horrific conflicts, you know, Darfur, Congo, things like that. But I always had a real passion for writing about how societies managed to live together and a you know tremendous interest in the colonial legacy that the continent was saddled with and how that played out in real time obviously you know my heritage was having a strong interest in economic and social and political development so i really tried very hard to tell stories about people really affecting their own destinies in mm -hmm. in meaningful ways and to get beyond the endless rape, murder, war, um, tribal tensions type of coverage of Africa. And not just like these are, in the words of our current president, hopeless shitholes, but these are really interesting dynamic places with as much richness and and power in their own way as anywhere else. It's interesting to hear you talk about it that way. Like, um, you know, I went back and read a lot of that stuff and also read some interviews with you from that time and it's very focused on Darfur and I just to be honest with you, I just assumed that that's what we would talk about <laughs> you know it's like what it's like to cover that it's in, yeah I wonder whether you think that a foreign correspondent needs to have some kind of philosophy like that like I feel like what you just outlined was like you had to have some kind of plan or philosophy or interest outside of whatever the sort of like big story will be to make that job work for you. Absolutely. And I think that's true of any kind of journalism, right? I mean, you can be driven by, you know, whatever the news cycle says you could be driven by, or you can attend to the news cycle and then also do things that you feel um, no one else is going to do and are, that are utterly distinctive. And Look, whenever I do interviews about covering Africa, the thing that people would ask about was conflict. Um, so I talked about it a little lot, right? I mean, um, people hear Darfur and they're like, ooh, tell me more. And it is fascinating. And the crisis in Darfur was, you know, had exactly the kind of complex roots that I'm talking about. And I tried to cover it from that perspective. Um, 
in addition to doing the kind of close-up live reporting of atrocities and things like that that I think are really important to bring to light. But yeah, I look now, I mean, Sudan has been going through an extraordinary political crisis and there are people being killed every day on the streets of Khartoum and nobody's paying attention to it because Darfur happened to capture the imagination Mm -hmm. of a set of activists in the West. It was vaulted out as this um, this crisis that everybody needed to pay attention to, and save Darfur became was a hashtag before there were hashtags. Um, but there is a kind of bog standard, incredibly tragic political crisis playing out as we speak in Sudan right now that literally no one is paying attention to, which is kind of heartbreaking. But you know, it's funny I, when I look back at my time in West Africa in particular, the coverage that I'm most proud of, like nobody ever asks me about or remembers. And that's actually um, covering Nigeria at a moment of like tremendous transition. Um, Nigeria is the most populous nation on the um, in sub-Saharan Africa. At the time, maybe one in six Africans was Nigerian, and that ratio has probably only increased. And you know, it's this extraordinary country with you know rich history, literature, diversity. Um, obviously, colonial hangover from the British and beyond. And, you know, the stories that I did about politics in Nigeria, I think, were some of the most important, that's some of the most important journalistic work that I've ever done, um, because it really was about the things that I care about most, which is how do societies figure out how to govern themselves? And Nigeria had gone from being a military dictatorship, a really brutal military dictatorship, to becoming a democracy. And... um, and I was covering one of the first elections um, where there would be a peaceful transfer of power. And I remember writing a story about a guy who was running for state governor in his home state. And, you know, the stakes for getting this office were so high that two of his fellow candidates had actually been murdered. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know. To me, that kind of coverage was the thing that really got me excited. And, you know, to like the diehard Africa folks in my, I didn't have a Twitter feed back then, but in my sort of email listserv circles, that's what we really cared about and talked about a lot. So you had this like a foreign correspondent path laid out in front of you, like times loved you. You could kind of go where you wanted to go. There are people who make their whole lives doing that job and sort of sit down in different places and do the work you're talking Mm. about uh, all over the world. And that's, that is their journalistic life. What brought you home? It's funny. Um, you know, I, I grew up as an expat, right? I mean, I was a kid living in other countries, and I've always been skeptical of expat life. Um, there's something sort of slightly deforming about living far from home in this kind of untethered way for long periods of time. I think it affects your character in ways that you don't quite realize. Um, like how? I just feel like I met a lot of people who were kind of running away from something, you know, um, who and maybe they're things that they should have been running away from. You know, maybe it's a terrible family situation or whatever. But you meet a lot of people who spend their lives far from their place of origin. Um, Like people who aren't like uh, quite whole. Yeah. And I even though I loved being a foreign correspondent, I kind of knew I didn't want that life. Um, you know, my wife and I, I mean, we'd been together since college and, you know, she's a photographer, so she was able to work, you know, in all the places where we moved. Um, 
when we first went abroad, uh, we were in our late 20s and all of the people that we loved and cared about were like super jazzed to come visit us, whether it was in Senegal or in India or in South Africa. But, you know, as we headed towards our, our 40s, people had young kids, they had aging parents. There were, there were a bunch of, you know, our parents were getting older. There were a bunch of reasons why if we wanted to stay tethered to these relationships that were really important to us, that we really needed to come back. And so we did. And, you know, I think for us, that was a a tough choice because I really, I really loved the work and my, my wife really loved the work that she was doing. But I also... You know, I just didn't want to be a long-term expat. I didn't mm-hmm. want to be one of those kind of untethered people. And also, you know, you want to keep growing, right? And the way that you grow as a foreign correspondent is you go to a new place and you learn it all over again. Um, by the time you've done that three times, you're like, okay, I understand the process of going to a new place and learning it all over again. Um, and I don't want to do it again. Yeah. You know? um, and I was offered a job um, as the deputy international editor, which is a big and important job at the New York Times. And um, I think I also felt like I'd done a lot as an individual contributor to journalism, mm-hmm. but I was really interested in figuring out how to help others do the work that I did and that that might be a way to have a different kind of impact. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the Times was very keen, always keen to sort of take talented reporters and and torture them into becoming editors. Um, (laughs) And I think it's a sort of necessity. And some are really good at resisting that. And out of a deep sense of love and loyalty and duty to the institution, you know, when asked, I served. And how long did you serve for? Once you came back, how long was it before you took the job? Um, So it was, um, that's a good question. I think it was couple of years at least. You know, I was a deputy international editor. And um, then as, you know, one of the people who, this was all around the period where the Times was going through, I think, enormous transformation around its digital presence. And you were starting to see a lot, you know, more collaboration between, you know, the newsroom and, you know, what we used to call the business side. And so I got asked fairly early on to help run a, a big kind of joint project between the business side and the news side to expand the Times audience and subscription base around the world. And that was actually really fascinating. I mean, I, you know, it it took me like quite a ways away from the journalism and much more into like product and engineering and, you know, marketing and all that kind of stuff. Um, But it was really interesting and a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. And we launched the Spanish language edition of the New York Times. Um, You know, I got to spend some time in China with our Chinese language edition. Um, So that was a lot of fun. Um, And, you know, look, I never had any intention of leaving the New York Times. I mean, I started working there in my mid-20s. And I, you know, I'm a fully formed creature of that place and really didn't expect to leave. So why'd you go? Well, I think... Like a lot of people, I think I went a little bit crazy after Donald Trump got elected. Um, I mean, I'd been approached about this job before the election. um, But I think and I think I was sort of intrigued. Um, You know, the Huffington Post to me felt like this really, really great platform with a huge audience that really did need a new vision and identity and a sense of like what it was going to be in the world post Ariana. You know, Mm -hmm. Ariana had already left. So it wasn't like they were pushing her out and bringing a new person in. It was, it was a thing that was looking for a new identity. Um, But if Hillary Clinton had won the election, I have a feeling that I'd, you know, still be a mid-level manager at the New York times happily doing, um, you know, 
working on hopefully important and strategic projects um, and doing lots of great journalism. But, you know, after the election, I just really started to think about about journalism, about my role in it, about who journalism was serving and who it was for. And I just became really enamored with this idea that you could create a, a news organization that was less kind of about the people left out of the political and economic power equations, but actually like for them. Um, And I started to think about the Huffington Post, you know, which has this massive audience and this kind of like tabloidy style as a kind of populist tabloid response to the current media moment that we're in. Mm -hmm. Um, And having worked at the Times, which, you know, is an absolutely indispensable institution, it's an elite product. It's a product for people who are educated, people who um, are interested in buying million dollar apartments. And I don't say that as a knock on the times at all. I mean, I, you know, I, this is an institution I absolutely love, but, but ultimately it's a question of sort of who at the end of the day is your customer, you know, who is your audience, mm-hmm. who are the people you're trying to reach. And, and I really felt like there was a gap there. And, just as there has been an enormous kind of yawning inequality in our society in so many ways, you see it in media as well. Um, There are a handful of legacy media organizations that have survived and I think in the era of Trump even thrived through um, charging readers directly for their content. And that creates an ecosystem in which you really do have these media haves and have nots, right? Mm -hmm. You have at the top of the heap, you have... um, news organizations that are really geared toward serving their paying subscribers. And, you know, their public service mission is extremely important. And the journalism that the New York Times puts out into the world is not just consumed by their subscribers, right? I mean, it sets the agenda for cable news, for other things like that. But if the product itself is fundamentally, you know, products come to resemble inevitably the people who pay for them and to most directly meet the needs of the people who pay for them. And I just was interested in like the other end of the scale, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, free to consumer media that I I felt there needed to be a a place for it. And this seemed like a really interesting opportunity to experiment with that. Was it hard to go? It was hard. It was the hardest thing I've ever done. Because I remember when that was announced, I was like spending a little time in the times at that point. And it was surprising. Like in the building, it was surprising. Yeah. Because ambition aside, you were like thought of as someone who was like uh, going places. Yeah. There, you know? (laughs) Um, Yeah. And I mean, that's the thing. Was it hard to give that up? I think it was hard. It was very hard to give that up. And, you know, I mean, the Times is both like all newsrooms the times is like a family um but the times is particularly like a family because it's it's actually run by a family um even though it's a publicly traded company and you know i spent my professional life there you know these people were 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 really my family so it was a really really tough choice and but the other thing is change is good and i really wanted to try something different with my life um and, you know, I'm, I'm sort of a small C conservative person in a lot of ways. And I felt very comfortable, particularly having had a slightly chaotic and peripatetic childhood, you know, kind of being tethered to the umbilical cord of the New York Times mm-hmm. felt really, really comfortable to me. And at this moment when it seemed like the whole world was coming apart to be like, you know what, I'm going to untether myself and see what happens, mm-hmm. um, felt like something exciting to do. And and I and I haven't regretted it. I mean, I, I miss my friends at the Times. I read their journalism occasionally with great envy, um, given the, the level of resources that they have. 
But no, I, I haven't regretted it for a second. That all makes sense to me, like the opportunity to try something different and make something anew for this moment. That makes sense to me as an appealing opportunity. But I also imagine that like in a more specific way, there were a lot of conversations before you took that job about what that job would be and what would be available to you. And I'm interested in how close it's like hewn to that. Like, <laughs> did it, did it, has it gone the way that you were told it would go? I mean, so much has changed, right? I mean, I think that the overall landscape has shifted dramatically in the last two years in lots of different ways, right? I think on one level, yeah, it has largely gone the way that I thought it would in the sense that there were no guarantees. You know, I'd been, you know, we'd been very upfront with one another, you know, me and the company that owns, at the time it was AOL, and then various mergers and other things have happened, So, um, but ultimately all owned by Verizon. It was very clear that this was a risk and a gamble um, because there really weren't any guarantees. There was clearly a huge opportunity, but not a kind of ironclad, like, you're going to have this amount of resources to do this number of things. It was a, let's see what we can do with what we've got. Mm -hmm. um, and when I took the job, I really said, like, I don't expect you to, I said, I'm not going to come in demanding resources. I want to see what I've got and see what I can do with it and then feel really good about coming to you with a case for investment. And, you know, that case has gone up, that case has gone down based on sort of so many factors, both internal and external to the overall um, environment in which we're living. But it's by and large actually been a really, really great experience. Um, I feel like I've learned so much about what it takes to run a newsroom that is lean but ambitious to develop a new voice in a way that feels authentic to what your vision is, but also works with what the thing was when you inherited it. Um, how to manage a big unruly group of journalists who have a lot of opinions. Um, and, you know, look, we're going through a period in digital media right now where, you know, a lot of the venture backed startups, I think, are, are finding themselves struggling to figure out what the future path looks like. Mm. Um, and uh, a lot of people, we're very excited about those venture-backed organizations. I feel pretty lucky to be part of a big company, to be honest. You know, I I think that being part of the, uh, under the Verizon umbrella actually gives us a lot of flexibility and freedom and support, which is great. And um, there will be a need and there is a strong audience for great journalism. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that's what I came to HuffPost to do and that's what we're continuing to do. How much of your time, like in the pie chart of your... Uh of your week, how much time is managing, how much time is journalism, and how much time is like uh, talking to higher ups at the, <laughs> at the phone company? <laughs> um, it really varies. Um, there are times where of like intense engagement with journalism where, you know, big stuff is happening and you're in copy and you're dispatching reporters and, and that kind of thing. Um, but like any modern editor-in-chief, I spend a very significant chunk of my time dealing with, you know, what used to be called the business side. Um, you know, just today, I spent a huge chunk of time dealing with the engineering team and the product team about a big decision that we have to make related to a big product that we're getting ready to launch and all of the trade-offs and pros and cons and different ways of storing databases of information and, you know, what are the traffic and revenue implications of making this decision versus that decision? 
this is pretty hardcore like spreadsheet stuff that yeah. <laughs> I think is a long, long, long way from, you know, covering elections in Nigeria or tromping on foot through the uh, the jungles of Congo to find a tin mine. Um, are you uh, into it or you tolerate it? Like, what, um, what do you make up in the morning thinking about the journalism or the spreadsheets? I mean, I think it's a combination of both. I think like I'm really driven by a desire to create a sustainable model for diverse voices in in journalism, right? Like, I don't want to wake up one day and find that we have, you know, the New York Times at the top of the heap, you know, cable news and a bunch of, like, bottom-feeding content farms. And, like, that's it, you know? I'm really keen to, like, find some space in there and Mm -hmm. preserve some space in there, um, particularly as you've seen local journalism collapse. So, to me, I'm really driven by this idea that if we want to maintain lots of different kinds of of journalism and lots of different voices in journalism, then you've got to find sustainable ways to to run journalism companies. And they shouldn't all be nonprofits either. I mean, <laughs> I think that model is really important and really good, but hopefully you'd have some, there ideally should be a path. And actually I think there is a path. Um, you know, big corporations spend money on things as part of their corporate social responsibility all the time. You know, you can say, oh, they're just doing it because it's like guilt money or whatever. But I think it's a really interesting challenge to big corporations to say, hey, you're putting all of this money into these platforms, Facebook, you know, Google, um, are they actually creating a stable environment in which you can actually do your business? Or should you be spending your advertising dollars in places that do contribute to mm-hmm. a stabilizing environment in which you could do your business, that do contribute to a society um, that um, is productive and democratic? Well, it's tricky because, like, you can say that to the companies that are advertising on those platforms and could be advertising with you. And also you are owned by one of those companies. (laughs) Like they themselves are spending tons of money on those platforms. Right. But they also own two really big news brands, right? I mean, they own um, HuffPost and they also own Yahoo News. And Yahoo News and HuffPost combined reach hundreds and, you know, of millions of people around the world, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that, And they do also spend money on um, HuffPost, both directly supporting our work. Um, They also advertise (laughs) with us. Um, And I think that this is very much a conversation that's happening with all kinds of companies, including with Verizon, about, you know, should you really be thinking about spending your, your marketing money with companies that that really engender the sorts of the sort of society mm-hmm. that you want to be operating your business in, and you know, charity begins at home. So start start with us. <laughs> right. Yeah, we'll take a little bit. Um, you've gone through two rounds of layoffs since you took that job. What have you learned about that process? And I don't know. What have you like learned about yourself doing that? Um, there are certain things that, having done them once. It doesn't make it any easier the second time. Um, it's tough. It's really tough. And in both cases, these were these were cuts that were not specifically targeted at HuffPost, but part of the overall corporate environment. The first round was ahead of the merger with Yahoo, um, and um, the second round, you know, came after what was a, a really tough year for Verizon Media, which is what our subsidiary of, of Verizon is called. 
And, um, you know, that's the business reality. Um, you know, you, you never want to have to, you never want anyone to lose their job. Um, but these are businesses and business realities do stare you in the face and you do have to live within the means that you have, but it's painful. There's no question. Um, we've tried as much as possible to make that transition to their next job as easy as possible. There are lots of things you do as a, as a company to do that. Um, but we've also tried to be really strategic and thinking about what are the things that we can actually be truly distinctive at and have a, a meaningful impact on. And, um, you know, when you go through this process, that's really what you think about is like, how do you focus the mind and take the resources that we have to do the best and most impactful journalism that we can? And I don't really believe in doing more with less. I think you do less with less and you do the things you choose to do fewer things and you do them better. Um, so that's been my approach. There's um, you're on Twitter still a bunch. You know, you know that there's this like a uh, existential sort of uh, digital media crisis. I feel like we were in at the moment. Do you, do you feel that? Or no? I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> um, no, of course. I mean, I think there is an existential digital media crisis, and I think that the whole idea that you know eighty percent of you know new digital ad spend is going to the platforms um, just means that there are going to be fewer players in in the field. That's just a reality, and there's ultimately going to be a, a winnowing of the field. We've already seen that with Mike and uh, and there will, there will probably be others. You know, I think that the idea of a digital media company going public is seems crazy to me now in a way that it didn't seem before. You know, I think we'll see a flurry of merger and acquisition activity happening. Uh, I think Jonah Peretti floated that idea to the New York Times yeah. that you'd band together all these news brands. And I think that I think that the reality is that the big news organizations that were getting their lunch eaten by digital news organizations, the legacy ones, um, have caught up and then beat the smaller ones at their own game, right? I mean, they learned how to do SEO. They learned how to do social. They learned how to be fast on breaking news and things like that. And so I think that that has led to a real kind of shakeout. Um, at the same time, I think that the need is as great as it's ever been. And um, there are consumers out there who who want the journalism that we're producing. I mean, in a good month, anywhere from 150 to 170 million people come to our our website, and that doesn't even count the people who read us on Apple News or the you mm -hmm. know all these other places where we publish. So there is enormous demand. The question is, can you can you make can you make money off of that audience, and can you make money off of that audience in a way that is ethical, um, that's respectful of their privacy? And I think those are the places where our company, at least, and I mean my my parent company, are you know we're really kind of invested in thinking about what the future of that looks like. That all makes sense to me. I imagine that there is still some part of you, maybe a part of you that is like connected to like the Ford correspondent or like the Washington Monthly intern who is like waiting tables while working for free that can feel a little bit of what just like general journalists are feeling right now, you know? Sure. And many of those people work for you, right? Yeah. So there's like a, some people left in the last couple of weeks and there's a whole bunch of people left. How do you talk to your staff about it? Like how mm. how do you... How do you tell everyone it's going to be okay if it maybe isn't going to be okay? Well, I don't tell them that it's going to be okay. I tell them that 
we have a really great fighting chance to do something really powerful and amazing here. And it's going to take all of us working really, really, really hard together to make sure that that happens. And I think that when you're leading a news organization, a digital media organization at a time of just constant disruption, you got to be honest with people. You got to level with them that there is a risk. And if they think things are bad in digital media, look at what's happening in local journalism. 250,000 jobs disappeared over, you know, since the 19, early 1990s. I mean, there are more journalist jobs that have been lost than coal mining jobs. It's, it's bleak out there. So I tell them, we're here now. We have this opportunity. We work for a really big, really great company that has invested in us, and we have a shot. So we have to work really hard to be relevant, to create journalism that no one else is doing, to have a deep relationship with our audience. Um, and we're just going to do our damnedest, not only to survive, but to like make a mark, to know that we've been here, that we broke this story, that we're, we're doing something that feels really, really meaningful. And I think you just got to hold on to that. Okay. <laughs> All right. Is it hard to keep that energy up? No, it isn't actually. Because I, I just, I'm a really persistent person. I mean, I remember I remember once trying to get a permit to go to Darfur. Because, you know, when you, when you be in um, Sudan, the Sudanese government, like, really didn't want people to go to Darfur. And so they made it really onerous. You'd, first, you'd have to get a visa to go to Sudan, and you'd go to Khartoum. And then in Khartoum, you'd have to go to this, like, Basically, like their version of the CIA or the KGB is who decided who got permits and who didn't. And you'd have to go and just have tea with somebody over and over and over again and show up at their office and sit there. And sometimes you'd be stuck in Khartoum for weeks waiting for this this paper to come through. And, you know, apropos of our earlier conversation, there's no alcohol in, in Khartoum. <laughs> it's hard, you know, not a ton of diversion. So um, and, you know, I never once left Sudan without a permit to go to Darfur when I wanted to go to Darfur. I'm a pretty persistent and energetic person, so <laughs> I don't give up easily. <laughs> hey, Lydia, thank you for doing this. This was great. Thanks, Max. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Pfeiffer, and our intern is Tyler McCloskey. Thanks to our sponsors, MailChimp and Pit Writers. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. Support for this show comes from Fundrise. 
Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting Fundrise.com Fox. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at Fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement.